said, we're going to continue our series on the core values of new ground and new frontiers. Uh, and we've looked at uh, the doctrinal values, three doctrinal values, uh, word-based, grace-filled, and spirit-empowered. We're looking at leadership values. We looked at elders in the local church, Ephesians 4 ministries, and going to look at uh, servant-hearted leadership this morning. And then we've got three more mission values that will be coming up over the next few weeks. Now, I want to start with a word, uh, and it's an English word, and it's not one I get to use very often. It is tautology. How about that, eh? And it's a bit of an odd word, I grant you that, but it means two or more words that say the same thing. So let me give you a few examples. In Rome, we saw dilapidated ruins. Now, ruins are by their very nature dilapidated, so that's tautology. The storm hit at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Oh, you can probably work that one out. He's always making predictions about the future. It's hard to make predictions about the past because that's hindsight. <laughs> now, here's another one, I think. Servant-hearted leadership. You see, leadership by definition should be servant-hearted. But we have to add that phrase to separate it from other styles of leadership. And Jesus warned his disciples about this. In Mark, he said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and their people in high position exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus spoke that in response to James and John coming to him and expressing their desire to sit on his right and his left in glory. But he also used it as an opportunity to teach them something about the kingdom of God. Specifically, that leadership in the kingdom is different to the culture of the world around them and around us. And more broadly, that we take our lead on how to live and act from the example of Jesus and God's word, not from secular society. Now, in my preparation for this message, I, 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 want, I, I was just going to touch on this. But over the last few days, I've just felt God prompt me again and again to focus on this a bit more. And I believe that God has something particular to say to us in this regard. And it's about not being influenced by the culture around us. And specifically by consumerism. And not allowing it to infiltrate church life. Or perhaps to weed it out before it has potential to take root. Now, you can define consumerism as being the accumulation of things, and it is that in part. 
but it's also about promoting the interests of the consumer or the customer, which has resulted in considerably better customer service in recent years. The customer's always right was a phrase we heard many years ago, although businesses rarely reflected that in the way that they operated. Now it's more like the customer's spending money, so what can I as a business do to have that money spent with me? Now you might say, what's this got to do with the church? Well, the danger is we get drawn into that culture and start to act like we are important, like the customer. It's all about me. Let me give you an example. When our daughter and family came back from Ghana to live in England, Claire was completely overwhelmed by the choice in the supermarkets. And her comment was, you demand so much. Well, we, we were quite indignant. We said, well, actually, we, we don't demand anything at all. But then realised that culture has become demanding. For ex- let me give you an example. A report says white bread is bad for you. So brown bread starts to appear in the shops. And then granary, then seeded, then rye, then sourdough, etc., etc., until the, the choice is almost overwhelming. And as consumers, we vote with our feet. So if one shop doesn't have what we want, we'll go somewhere else. And the same can be said for price, for quality, and many other factors. How does that impact the church? Well, let me give you another example that is a little closer to home. I read this in the Times a week ago. I cut it out. Uh, It's it's an article in the Times. I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to try to notice three different perspectives. First, the writer of the article and his style, which indicates his opinion. Second, the dean of York Minster, who the article is about. And third, the congregation of York Minster. The article is headed, Dean Chases His Flock Away. O come all ye faithful, will have an asterisk next to it at York Minster this Christmas. The faithful are, in fact, being asked not to come to the cathedral's nine lessons and carols, but to watch the service online so that casual visitors, notice casual, not just visitors, but casual visitors, that has got up many noses. No, sorry. So that casual visitors can have their seats. Apologies. Family hold back. That's quite, that would have been a better article, wouldn't it? (laughs) Family hold back, urges the dean, Jonathan Frost, in an epistle that has got up many noses. This is down to COVID timidity. The minster can seat 2,500, but while theatres and sports grounds are at full capacity, Frost is limiting attendance to 750 and would rather they were not regular Christians. Quoting an earlier Archbishop, William Temple, he wrote, The church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Laudable outreach. But as one worshipper grumbles, he seems to forget all the volunteers and covenant givers who keep this place going. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that that could happen here. But you see how the concept of consumerism has the potential to impact church life. I give, I serve, therefore I have a right. And missing completely the reason for the church's existence. Now I want to look at some possible areas in our church life that could indicate a weed of consumerism that needs to die. When we were in Hastings, there was a guy who, whenever he preached a straight message that had the potential to offend, he would throw out Mars bars. And he would say, if you don't want one, don't catch one. Then he'd say, and treat what I'm going to say in the same way. If it doesn't apply to you, don't be offended. Let it fly by. Let it pass by. But if, if the spirit starts to convict, then find someone to talk to and ask them for their help in starting to change. Now, I'm not going to throw out chocolate bars, but I'd ask you to consider this in the same way. So firstly, the Bible. Maybe your Bible. Do you bring a ch- Bible to church with you? You know, and it could be in book form, or it could be in phone form on an app. Maybe you think, why do I need a Bible? Every passage or Bible quote is up on the screen for me to look at. And each preacher, in fact, uses a different version. So mine never matches what's being read. uh, And so I, I find it hard to follow. And then I find myself thinking about the differences and not listening. Let's see what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians about this. He says, what is the outcome then, brothers and sisters? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All things are to be done for edification. Now, Paul was teaching to try to bring order out of the chaos of the Corinthian meetings. They would speak over one another. They'd bring tongue after tongue without an interpretation. And so he's trying to address that. But notice, he says, each one has. This is a contribution culture, not a consumer culture. How can God speak to you through a passage in the Bible to bring encouragement to us, the people of God, if you don't have a Bible with you. And there can be an unhelpful progression, which might happen over a period of months or longer. You bring your Bible regularly, but I don't know, somehow God doesn't speak to you. Or maybe he does and somebody else gets there first and you think, oh, I don't know whether I can bring this. Maybe I won't. I'll just, I won't do anything. And you do that regularly. And then one Sunday you forget your Bible. You leave it at home and you get, and you get to the end of the meeting and you think, oh, well, what, what was the difference? And Sundays come and Sundays go and other people share and suddenly you find yourself sitting back and waiting for others to share. And you're watching what's going on. You've become a consumer 
not a contributor. And I think lockdown and isolation and watching online has make it, made that much harder. And I think it's all contributed to make this an easier trap to fall into just at the moment. So that's the Bible. What about worship? Now here are some comments I have heard, not necessarily here. I didn't get much out of the worship today. I arrived a bit late, but, but I only missed the worship. I was here for the word. I don't know why we have to repeat verses and phrases again and again. I really didn't like the tune of that new song. I don't know where the worship was going this morning. I really don't. It seemed all over the place. These are consumer culture comments. Contributor culture comments sound very different, and I've heard these too, not necessarily here. I wanted to read a psalm this morning, but there was no opportunity. There was no space. Wasn't it wonderful how the singing in the spirit ebbed and flowed like it was being conducted? Did we have to stop worship? Why couldn't it go on longer? Oh, it was so encouraging to hear the children and youth sharing. Isn't it great to hear people pray in their own language? And probably the most important point of all is that worship isn't for you anyway. It's for God. He is amazingly gracious and he allows us to enjoy the act of worship. But it's about us giving honor and glory and praise and adoration and thanksgiving to him for what he has done and who he is. Here are a couple of pictures that are on our fridge at home. They're not especially artistic nor creative. They probably wouldn't win an art competition, but they're by our grandchildren. People don't come in and say, what have you got that on your fridge for? They admire it for what it is, an expression of love. This is also in our kitchen. It's a framed certificate that I see at least 10 times a day as it's right by the kettle where we make the tea and we drink quite a lot of tea. It's over 30 years old and it's in a frame to preserve it and keep it clean. It reads like this. This certificate is awarded to my mummy because she cooks the dinner and she buys me shoes. She took me to see Claire play the clarinet for the festival. She'd take me on nice holidays and she'd give me presents. She takes me for walks. She tells me words that I don't know from my reading book. She does spellings with me. I love her. And I'm glad she is my mummy. And it's signed Timothy. It was written by our son. To Liz. But I don't look at it and say, the grammar's not very good. 
The spelling needs a bit of work. And he doesn't mention any of the things that I've done for him. (laughs) I say, let's frame it. Let's look at it regularly because it expresses love and appreciation with simple honesty and devotion. As we start to appreciate the worship that others express, we move from consumer to contributor. So Bible, worship, one more. Your walk with God. We live in a society which has a culture of consumerism, of risk aversion, of litigation and blame. And I believe there's a danger we can allow those influences to affect our walk and relationship with God. When we read the word, how do we approach it? Well, what have you got to say to me today, Lord? Or I'm going to dig into your word until I find a nugget that's going to sustain me through today. Maybe you use Bible reading notes. These are really helpful. I like Phil Moore's Straight to the Heart series. Amazing insight. And he has, I don't know, just an incredible appreciation of the breadth of God's story. And it's so well presented with catchy titles that help you remember and easy to understand writing. So what's the problem? Well, none if we use his books or any other notes to help us to understand what we read in the Bible. The danger is we move away from using it as an aid. We skip through the Bible passage and quickly move to read the notes. Or we think, you know, I've read this passage so many times. I know this story inside out. I've heard it since I was at Sunday school. I'll just read the notes. And then we find ourselves not reading the Bible at all. Just reading the notes. Also part of our walk with God, what about guidance? How do we determine what is God's will for our lives? How do we make godly decisions about things that aren't obviously right or wrong. If God doesn't speak, what do we do? Well, I think we can fall into inertia when we should be taking initiative. What do we find in the New Testament? Well, in Matthew 28, well-known passage, The Great Commission, Jesus gives a broad instruction to his disciples and by association to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach them. Simple instruction. Later, he said, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, maybe they got a bit confused with the go and then the stay, but after the Holy Spirit came, they basically stayed. And it wasn't until Acts 8 that we see God using persecution to scatter the believers. And from then on, I can't recall a single occasion when God says, go there specifically. 
In Acts 13, he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And in Acts 16, Paul has a dream about Macedonia. But then in Acts 21, Paul receives a prophetic word that he will have trouble in Jerusalem and the believers interpret that he shouldn't go. And he says, well, I'm going anyway. There are some verses in Acts 16, which I think sum up the style of their guidance. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region after being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go down to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. The sense I get here is God hasn't spoken specifically, so we'll try something and see what happens. Even in Paul's letters, we get a similar sense. To the Corinthians, he wrote, he wrote, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. To the Romans, he said, that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and relax in your company. The church just up the road in Whiteleaf, where Liz and I grew up, was evangelical, but not charismatic. In fact, they were quite resistant to the things of the Holy Spirit but frequently written in the weekly newsletter or spoken in the notices were the letters DV. The abbreviation is of a Latin phrase, Deo Valenti, which means God willing. And lots of the believers in that church live their lives according to that principle. One was a music teacher in a girls' school. Another ran a lawnmower and garden tools business in Catrum. Another opened a Chinese restaurant with her husband and family. They got on with what was available and trusted God would direct them differently if he had another path for them to follow. Recently, Stuart Taylor went to Barbados for six months. He saw that the country was offering a good deal and his company agreed, although he had to work UK hours, so he was up at three or four in the morning. Did God specifically direct him to go to Barbados? No. He just took the opportunity, but God didn't stop him. He could have done, but he didn't. What will be the outcome of that? Maybe nothing, but maybe There'll be a thriving church there in 10 years' time. Who knows? Now, am I advocating we don't listen to God? No. Am I suggesting it's wrong to seek his will? No. Am I recommending we take some risks and see what God will do? Yes. And act in a way that is countercultural to society? Yes. Now, you might be thinking, Kevin has lost it. What has this got to do with servant-hearted leadership? Well, let's turn to that subject, and maybe you'll see that what I've been focusing on has more to do with leadership than you might think. Here's a good question. What's the point of leaders? Now, you may well be thinking that at this moment. (laughs) Why do we have them? Why do we need them? Well, this is what Paul says to the Ephesians. And he, that is the risen Christ, 
gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by the culture of the... Oh, no, it doesn't say that. By craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Equipping the church for ministry, building up the body of Christ, gaining knowledge and growing into maturity, not like children responding to the latest fad, Speaking truth, which is not just about being honest, but able to speak truth into situations. Taking part, contributing. So leaders are here in the church to help each one of us become mature in God. Understanding the word of God so that it shapes our lives, but also so we can apply its truth and its principles to the situations we face and the people we encounter. Leaders help us find our place in the body. And as we exercise our role, we have opportunity to strengthen ourselves so we're able to support one another and grow together. You might think that servant-hearted leadership does it for you, like a servant. But true leaders show by example and then step aside. This is what Jesus did. At the Last Supper, he washed the feet of the disciples and then he said to them, so if I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, so that you also would do just as I did for you. And not just that moment of washing the disciples' feet, but all the things that Jesus uh, led as an example and did for them. He, he healed the sick and raised the dead and preached the gospel, and then he sent out the twelve. And then he sent out the 72. He'd set them an example and then allowed them to get involved. We lead by example. And this is where one aspect of consumer culture is correct. It's all about me. You see, lead by example is not just an instruction to leaders. It's a description of each one of us. What we do or don't do, how we live is an example which will be followed by others. And it can be consumer 
or contributor. And this applies in every context of church life. Whether it's youth or children's work, whether it's meeting makers, Sunday setup, whether it's life group, prayer meetings, worship, testimonies, or dare I say, arriving on time. The only time Jesus arrived late, I think, is when Mary and Martha sent word that Lazarus was unwell. He arrived late, but he raised Lazarus from the dead. So follow that example if you can. And please realize I do appreciate that occasions arise when we can't get involved. Some emergency happens and we miss life group. Well, we arrive late, you know, I get it. Or our circumstances are such that we just can't serve in an area for months or longer. I understand, I get it. But as a leader in the church here, I'm trying to convey and demonstrate servant-hearted leadership by suggesting you consider on the consumer-contributor scale that you may be subconsciously impacted by society and leaning towards inertia on the consumer side. And I'm encouraging you to turn round and lean towards initiative on the contributor side. Not because I've asked you to, but to use Paul's words for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's the goal of servant-hearted leadership.